Tonight, all hail Haley. You need a badass woman in charge at the White House. Nikki Haley continues her meteoric rise in New Hampshire. Can she capitalize on her moment or will the attention kill her campaign like it did for DeSantis? And Ramaswamy. Hey, what happened to the Haley surge? You know, he could, there's a surge going on. Heightened threat. New warnings Hamas could use our open southern border to pour into the United States. Are we prepared to defeat an October 7th style attack? Please bring me home. Vladimir Putin says he's ready to make a deal and free an American held hostage for five years. Paul Whelan's brother joins us to respond to Putin's demands. Will President Biden make a deal? And divided we stand. We want to be a city where everyone's identity is embraced. The mayor of Boston defends her Christmas party. No whites allowed. How DEI enthusiasts are fighting to keep their social experiment alive. Welcome to the Ferris Show on television. Joining you this evening from New York. Good evening. First tonight, Nikki's moment. Moments in politics are akin to product debuts. Tons of advertising and exposure. And either the voters love you or your moment fades. Just ask Vivek Ramaswamy and Ron DeSantis. They had their moments. They got exposure and the good advertising killed a bad product. When voters got exposed to them, their poll numbers went down. Specifically in New Hampshire, as voters are becoming more and more exposed to Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley's numbers are going up. Our Decision Desk HQ polling average shows Haley in a solid second place, 20 points right now, she's at about 20, up six in the past two months, and 26 points behind Donald Trump. But New Hampshire's an open primary. So Democrats and independents can break late for Haley, something she is counting on. We should want to win the majority of Americans. But the only way we're going to win the majority of Americans is if we have a new generational leader. Haley appears, emphasis appears, to have the right amount of likability, confidence and swagger. That, shall we say, is in comparison to female Republican candidates of past Michelle Bachman, Carly Fiorina, come to mind. If you want to talk about Democrats, Hillary Clinton failed for obvious reasons. And Haley is trying, emphasis trying, to put the past... Drama, no vendettas, no whining. It's about work for me. It's about results for the American people. All right, Lauren writes here, professor of political science at Princeton, but we start with Congressman Ralph Norman of South Carolina. I think it's fair to count you in the Nikki Haley fan club. Uh, good to see you. Maybe even the founding member, I might say, Congressman. It's good to see you. Um, Lily, glad to be with you. Yeah, I have done this segment so many times going back to 2015. Um, Rubio, Carson, Cruz, DeSantis, talking about all these people who might have their moment against Donald Trump. And every time the moment fizzles, I'll tee it up for you. Why should, why should we think Nikki Haley's moment is going to be anything different than all those other folks? It'll be completely different, uh, Leland, and here's why. 
You know, Nikki has, and I've known her since we came into the South Carolina legislature since 2005. That same work ethic, that same fire, that same uh, just likability factor has been on display since she announced on February 14th, which has been right at 10 months ago. The 326 days before the election, and the reason she's going up in the polls is people know that she can win. And that's really the question now. Uh, DeSantis has, has gone down because, you know, he's got a likability factor. And the fact that uh, people, the more they see her, the more they like her. And she's got a vision. She's got a plan. And it boils down to the, who can attract the suburban moms? Nikki Haley. Who can right, look, you're, you're arguing the, electable, the elect, electability point, and she certainly does better uh, in polling against, say, Joe Biden, against Joe Biden than Donald Trump does. She's up 17 points. Biden's up about four. Uh, at the same time, though, what I can't figure out is you, you got to get out of the primary. You got to win the primary to be able to have a chance at the general election. Electability doesn't seem to be an issue for Republican voters. I think about her, her home state, your home state of South Carolina. If she is so likable, why in a state that she was the governor is she not more popular? She's down 30 points to Donald Trump in South Carolina. Well, we'll see if that holds up, Leland. I mean, you know, we've got uh, Iowa on January 15th. She's, she's going to come in second. Uh, you got New Hampshire on the 23rd. She will come in second. Uh, South Carolina on the 24th. Uh, and so you will see a Nikki Haley that I think will surprise a lot of people. I, you know, the, the thing that has changed, uh, do you really want to put up a candidate that is, can only serve four years? Do you really want to put up a candidate that barely wins by the margin of error? Nikki Haley is in double digits beating a man in, in Joe Biden who's destroying this country. So that's what's changed. And you will see her continue to go up, and uh, particularly in, in the three uh, caucuses that I mentioned, and then on Super Tuesday, uh, where 12 states will choose somebody. But uh, in politics, you're either going up or you're coming yeah, down. Well, Nikki Haley has steadily gone up. I think it was H.W. Bush who coined the big mo, big momentum. Uh, the, the attacks on her um, have been pretty significant, uh, both from Ron DeSantis, but from Donald Trump's camp, in that she is the perfect 2012 Republican, not the perfect 2024 Republican. Um, here is some of those painting her as a flip-flopper. When she was a House member, she voted for tax increases. And when she was a governor, uh, she architected one of the largest tax increases in the history of the state of South Carolina. She's been so inconsistent on that and flip-flopped on that so often that people are starting to confuse her with Mitt Romney at this point. All right, your response quickly. Well, for, first of all, she's uh, what he said is, is, is she's been elected every time she's run. She's a pro-business candidate. They were the, she's the beast of the Southeast as far as the, her business. And people like Nikki Haley. And, again, she's the only candidate that uh, is going up in the polls instead of coming down. It's because of her policies and her vision for America. All right. Congressman, it's good to see you. Thank you. If we don't talk before, Merry Christmas, all right? Merry Christmas. Yes, sir. Christmas in South Carolina is a nice place. It's a little warmer than here in New York, Lauren. Sure is. Uh, you know what I thought was interesting about the congressman's comments? He said she was going to come in second in, South, in New Hampshire. Right. He didn't even say first. Right. 
And that's probably the best she can expect, reasonably so. You pointed out, I think, the key statistic, which is 30 points behind Donald Trump in her home state. The problem with the Nikki Mentum narrative is there is also Trump Mentum. It is not the case that the polls are tightening. It's the case that she is building her share of the electorate, absolutely, and so is Trump as we get closer. So how is she going to close that gap? She says, I've got a better style, calmer, more business-oriented, but the same policy. Problem is, GOP voters love Trump style. That's why right. he got the, the where primary, he is in the, the first place. The primary voters love it. The, they do. The general election voters, not not right. so much. Yep. Although, the one thing, and I'm, I'm wondering how much of a role you think the media is going to play in this, because the media loves to deify Republicans who are anti-Trump, and she seems to be getting, at least starting to get some of that treatment. Is that going to continue? I think she's doing well, so she'll continue to get attention. And where she's doing well is these high-profile debates. I mean, look, the conventional wisdom is that the primary environment is hostile to women and voters are biased against women. If that's true, then only the most ambitious, skilled women make it as far as she has. She's beat out four Republican governors so far, or former ones. Mike Pence, a fifth, if you count him, if she's going to come in second. Former vice president, yeah. Exactly. So what she has done is extraordinary, and she's highly skilled. But again, the relevant comparison, as you noted, is Trump, not the rest of these guys. If you think about the the dream unity tickets, you know, there's all this talk about third-party unity tickets. Isn't the dream Republican unity ticket Trump-Haley? I don't know, because this was the Trump administration. She was in lockstep with Trump in the administration. Yeah, I'm just wondering, though, I don't know how we pull this, right? How do we think about, though— suburban women who, who may not like Donald Trump and are, but don't like Joe Biden, and they look to Nikki Haley as sort of the moderating force in the same way that Christian evangelicals looked at Mike Pence as, as the insurance policy that Donald Trump would be who he said he was in 2016. The track record from 2021 is she said, if he's running, I'm not. So the past would suggest things don't play out that way. A vice president can get you a lot of exciting attention, but it's not going to swing voters in the way that perhaps Trump needs. All right. It's good to see you as always. Thank you. Talk soon. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu is defending her decision. Yes, she's defending her decision to throw a no whites allowed Christmas party. We've had individual conversations with everyone so people understand that it was truly just an honest mistake that went out in, in typing the email field. Okay, so here's the email. It reads, elected of color holiday party tomorrow. The mistake the mayor is referring to is that it was sent to all 13 members of the council, including the seven members who are white. The mistake, as she sees it, was not that she held a segregated racist party. It was that she invited white people to her elected of color holiday party. In other words, the mistake was that people knew she threw an all color, no whites allowed Christmas party. Wu, by the way, is a double graduate of Harvard University having gone to undergraduate and law school there. It's President Claudine Gay, who refused to condemn the violent anti-Semitic actions on Capitol Hill last week, is reportedly a beneficiary of the DEI movement. According to billionaire and Harvard alum, Bill Ackman, that's why she was hired. So the diversity, equity, and inclusion movement, once meant to be inclusive, is proving exclusive at its core. Whites aren't allowed at the Boston mayor's Christmas party in the name of equity and inclusion. The president of Harvard cannot be a white man. 
And DEI doctrine okays the harassment of Jews at school. DEI is the institutionalization of cultural Marxism. This is video from Harvard. DEI views Jews as the privileged oppressors, thus chance to kill them are okay. Just so we're clear, they're chanting for intifada. That's the violent uprising and killing of Jews, not necessarily and not just in Israel, but worldwide. And we're seeing this not just in colleges. Andrew Goldberg lives in the affluent town of Westport, Connecticut. He has a seven-year-old son. You are not bad in Newsweek. My son faced anti-Semitism. His school tried to buy our silence. In it, Goldberg writes, one student, whom my son considered a friend, invited my son to sign up for his camp, which had great showers, Camp Auschwitz. He said another Jewish classmate of theirs had already signed up. He goes on to detail a number of other anti-Semitic incidents targeting his son and how the school did nothing to stop him. Andrew joins us now. I think one of the things that he was talking about and was said to your son was exterminate all Jews. Um, Let's just start from the beginning here. Where are these kids, these other kids in seventh grade, where are they learning this stuff? Yeah, that's a good question. I think they learn it from TV. I think they learn it from perhaps family. Uh, I don't know where they're getting it, but I do know that, that, that they're not being told uh, not to say these things uh, in our educational system. And, uh, you know, it's concerning when these types of comments are allowed to sort of flourish and happen and take place. You know, we spoke to one of the... Uh, uh, there, there was a, another student who'd made some uh, homophobic comments, and we went to the to the school principal, excuse me, to the school counselor, who said, "You know, all the kids are saying it. We just can't get them to stop." So, the the the, the overarching problem here, and certainly, I think my focus I want to make to be on anti-Semitism is that combating anti-Semitism is something that is is always given a second place at the table. It's never the first place at the table when it comes to these uh, uh, tolerance initiatives, and you know. Uh, education initiatives to teach us to quote unquote all get along. Somehow or another, Jews and anti-Semitism are never given uh, a, a first place, and that's deeply yeah, problematic. It's hard to argue with that, right? Especially considering what we've seen over the past um, couple of weeks. The Westport Public Schools categorically rejects anti-Semitism, has no tolerance for anti-Semitism or any other form of hate. Uh, this is their response. We address each issue and report head on as they arise. Our response is done in a manner designed to help students feel safe and welcome in our schools. I don't think that happened to your son, but I guess my question would be, and you may have already alluded to that, if if your son had been black or trans and had similar things said to him, um, would their response have been the same, you think? So that's a dangerous place for me to guess, because if I were to make a guess and be wrong about it, I could get myself in trouble. But I can frame it by saying that I see time and time again in our school and in other schools that Jews are not giving the first place at the table. I just wouldn't be able to say what would happen to one of those students only because I don't have the first-hand experience. But what I can say is that if you extrapolate into the larger, into the nation at large, we find the most incredible, forceful statements against bigotry, discrimination of any kind. And yet when it comes to Jews, suddenly these administrators have the most nuanced and clever ways to allow for this situation and that situation to happen. I mean, listening to the, I didn't listen to the whole thing, but listening to these professors you know, testify on Capitol Hill, it was unbelievable the sophisticated language that they used to allow for mistreatment of Jews to take yeah. place. And right, yet so- somehow or another, 
you know, whether it's it's any other uh, a community that is oppressed that deserves protection, they come out in force. Right. Why is that? No, and no, this no. is something that it, really is concerning. I, I just briefly, I want to take our viewers through what happened with your son. You all kept going to the administration. They kept doing nothing. Uh, eventually, some lawyers got involved. They offered a settlement to, to pay um, for uh your son to go to private school, but demanded your silence in return. You couldn't talk about what had happened, their harassment, and the lack of response um, by the school itself. I'm, I'm interested, just before we go, how's your son doing with all this? We had to take my son out of the school because what happened was then the other parents in town started to hear about it, and we became a kind of a pariah. We got uh, uh, text messages that were very unfriendly that accused us of causing the problem as if it was our fault that someone had said to my son, you should go to Camp Auschwitz, exterminate all of the Jews. The school administration not only tried to buy our silence, they tried to buy my son's silence. They actually said in their contract that my 12-year-old son would not be allowed to ever speak that any of this had happened. And in exchange, they would pay for one year, not even, it was a little more than a year of of him to go to to a Jewish day school 40 minutes away. I mean, it's such an unpleasant situation. We moved to this town thinking it would be warm and understanding and tolerant, and it, and it really isn't. But again, I feel like I want to come back to this issue with, with the DEI initiatives. A lot of these DEI initiatives are very helpful and important, but somehow or another, the Jew and anti-Semitism is forgotten and ignored. You can go, you can just Google study after study after mm-hmm. study shows how DEI is carving out a hole for the Jewish American experience, which is unfair, which allows for anti-Semitism. I'm not talking about disagreement with the Israeli government. Yeah, no, you I, yeah. All these you, you get- I'm talking about outright abuse of Jews. As a journalist, you may not know this, I made the film viral, Anti-Semitism and Four Mutations, on, which was on PBS. I stood, I'm the only journalist that was, as far as I know, was allowed inside the Tree of Life after the shooting. And I stood there staring at the bullet holes on the wall I see this stuff, you know, in my work for years and years and years firsthand. So when these things come to my son, it's ironic, but it's terrifying. It's if we're not drawing a line with anti-Semitism, the violence comes next. And that's a scary thought. Yeah, it's a very scary thought. Um, Andrew, I want to tell you, uh, as, a, as a young man who was bullied myself and whose father also stood up for him, um, what you're doing for your son's really important. Um, and, he'll never, and he'll never forget it. It's very cool. Um, so we appreciate it. We're going to follow, follow your work and follow his story as well, all right? Thank you for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Uh, look, the DEI world is not going quietly. There's a lot of pressure on DEI. You just heard about it there. And obviously, uh, Bill Ackman, among others, are fighting it on college campuses. Tomorrow, we will show you how DEI enthusiasts are fighting, fighting very hard to save their policies. Coming up next, Vladimir Putin says he's open to returning to Americans. He's let... He's held hostage in Russia. We'll speak to the brother of one on why his year, why this year, might bring his brother home. And the Biden White House wants to limit the sales of M16s to Israel. What if that quickly becomes the sale of F16s to Israel? How will our biggest ally take being dictated to when they are fighting for survival? I'm not going to get into that too much. Um, Just, you know, people I love are suffering. That's Brittany Alconis about her husband, Ridge. After 500 plus days wrongfully imprisoned in Japan, Ridge is coming home. It's been almost a year since President Biden promised Brittany Alconis he would bring the Navy lieutenant and father of three back from Japan. That's them hugging at the State of the Union address. 
After a years-long fight to bring him home, U.S. Navy officer Ridge Alconis, who was imprisoned in Japan, has been released from prison and is now in U.S. custody. He had a medical incident while driving, and the Japanese, for some reason, charged him with negligent driving and then put him in jail. It's now up to the Department of Justice if they will keep him in custody once he gets to America or release him to be with his family for Christmas, where he deserves. Of course, we're going to continue to follow Ridge's case. Another wrongfully detained American held overseas could, well, I guess you could say hopefully, although hope is hard to find these days, come home soon. Paul Whelan came up during Vladimir Putin's end-of-year call-in TV show. We have contacts with our American partners on that. We're in touch with them, and uh, we pursue dialogue. I hope we'll find a mutually acceptable solution, but the American side should also listen to us and and, uh, make a decision that would be satisfactory for the Russian side also. With us now, David Whelan, brother of Paul Whelan. Uh, I know you've been down this road so many times, it's probably hard to get your hopes up. It is. And uh, when I heard the news, I I didn't really hear anything new. President Putin and President Biden had uh, initiated a channel for exchanges back in 2021. uh, And that channel has worked twice now. It has brought home uh, Brittany Griner. It's brought home Trevor Reed. Uh, and uh, it has failed a couple of times. Uh, the Russians either, either ignored or rejected two or three different offers. So um, it was nice to hear the president say that they are open to a resolution. Sometimes we wonder, uh, based on their um, not necessarily good faith uh, activity relating to the exchanges, but uh, I don't think it indicates that there's any particular change in Paul's situation. All right, so we, we've heard both from the White House and the State Department as well about that, that they, they've made offers. Now Vladimir Putin's talked about this. Um, this is from your brother. I told him point blank. This is Paul Whelan to Secretary of State Antony Blinken in August of 2023, so just a couple of months ago. I told him part, point blank during a phone call that leaving me here the first time painted a target on back, leaving me here the second time basically signed a death warrant. I, I know how painful that is for you to, to hear back. Uh, at the same time, you can't, can't stop fighting, can you? You can't. And I think the difficulty for Paul is particularly uh, he was assaulted in November. Um, I think he's got a concern that uh, the longer that the U.S. is unsuccessful at bringing him back, either uh, because they don't have a valuable enough concession for uh, him um, or whatever other reason there is, uh, is that the physical um, his physical safety will become uh, less and less uh, uh, guaranteed in the prison. Um, obviously, as long as the Russians consider the hostages like uh, Paul to be valuable, they will, you know, treat them well. Um, but if they start to uh, treat them poorly, then uh, you start to wonder about how much they value the hostages. Do we have any idea why yet, uh, other than simply wanting a a pawn and a and a chip? Um, you know, Evan Gershkovich, Wall Street Journal reporter. And then, do we know why, going so far back, your brother has been held for so long, and why the Russians seem to place such an enormous value on him? Well, I think uh, President Putin is well known to hate uh, any sort of treason or traitors. And I think in his mind, the espionage charges may be the uh, worst sin that uh, someone could commit against Russia. And so they are the most important uh, cases. They have the most value. Um, And even though it's an arbitrarily applied label in both Paul's case and Mr. Gershkovich's case, uh, in in that neither of them actually committed uh, espionage, um, from the Russian perspective, uh, it has a, a high price tag, and uh, yeah. they will probably remain there until the U.S. Uh, um, finds a way to pay the price. 
And Putin can't be seen as backing down. He has to see as being extracting an extraordinary price in order to, to give these people up who he's, he's laid out such a high bar for his own people. Uh, keep fighting. Um, I know that means the world to Paul. And for people who used to spend time overseas, the, the, the knowledge that your family would fight for you is uh, what keeps you going. Thank you. That's right. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, thank you. The heat from his vice president and staff is pushing President Biden ever closer. Keeps walking up there to handcuffing Israel. Tone it down, move to a lower intensity phase. I want them to be focused on how to save civilian lives, not stop going after Hamas, but be more careful. All right, so that's what President Biden said publicly a few hours ago in response to a report that his national security advisor gave the Israelis a warning. Here's the scoop from Axios. In a closed-door meeting, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan told the Israeli Prime Minister to end the, quote, high-intensity phase of fighting within weeks. Translation, stop bombing Gaza. President Biden is trying to twist Netanyahu's arm in the form of limiting aid. It all, of course, has to do with domestic pressure here at home. A number of President Biden's staffers held a ceasefire protest outside the White House last night. It's, it's unheard of. You might notice how many of their faces were covered. According to Politico, Vice President Harris is pushing the White House to be more sympathetic towards Palestinians. The report follows her recent comments in Dubai. The United States is unequivocal. International humanitarian law must be respected. Too many innocent Palestinians have been killed. Last night, we told you about the administration pausing the sale of M-16 rifles to Israel. Today, CNN aired a report about what kind of American bombs Israel is using to try to make the case for limiting the use of unguided bombs that Israel gets from the United States. The question is now, why is Israel using these dumb bombs? And we really don't have a great explanation at this point. Because there is not unlimited smart bombs, number one, and smart bombs cost a lot more. They're not always needed. John Bolton's here, former U.N. ambassador, assistant to the president for national security affairs in the Trump administration, national security advisor. Uh, ambassador, good to see you. You've, you've had to make these trips. You've had to, to telegraph these moves. Is the Biden administration getting ever closer to trying to handcuff Israel? Well, I think that's exactly what uh, what they're doing. It's what they did today. The, the president, the White House are schizophrenic on this subject. They say at one level they support Israel. But these kinds of, uh, of, of steps telling the Israelis to move to lower intensity operations, to wrap it up in a couple of weeks, implying that they're violating the laws of armed conflict, are all objectively pro-Hamas. Israel either has a right to defend itself up to and including eliminating Hamas, or it doesn't. And, and to talk about dumb bombs or, or uh, white phosphorus as if people don't understand how those are used in war and merely using white phosphorus, for example, as a war crime, this is all intended to undercut international support for Israel, which the president himself did by saying uh, international support for Israel is falling. When the U.S. president says that, people believe it. So the, the word to Israel, I think, ought to be, look, uh, if you intend to uh, act in self-defense, as you said, to eliminate Hamas, you better speak clearly to the White House that that's what you're going to do, no matter what they say. Well, Prime Minister Netanyahu has come out and basically uh, told anyone, he won't say President Biden specifically, to go fly a kite and said, you know, we're going we're gonna to do this. We're not going to kneel or bend pressure. Uh, the pressure is mounting, though, and you can see it in the media as well. Clarissa Ward, a good reporter. I used to spend some time with her overseas. Um, She got into Gaza with an Emirati medical team and filed this for CNN. Take a listen. 
eight-year-old Janan was lucky enough to survive a strike on her family home that crushed her femur but spared her immediate family. She says she's not in pain. I don't need to tell you this. War is hell. Um, and there are civilians who die and are injured and, and the like. Obviously, there were 1,200 civilians who were murdered and a lot more who were injured and raped and pillaged during uh, Hamas's attacks. I, I guess my question, though, is how are we to read the Biden administration's response to these? I feel like they want it both ways, and I'm wondering if they can have it both ways. Well, I think there are two, two, well, there are three questions, really. One is the legal question, one is the political question, one is the moral question. Let's, let's deal with the moral question first, because I think it's straightforward. The, the morally reprehensible party here is the party that puts civilians at risk, and that is Hamas. Uh, in, the, in the West, we have tried for centuries to limit the combat in ways that keep the civilian population out of it. The terrorists do the exact opposite. The whole point of their terrorism is to go after innocent civilians, first after the Israelis, and then to use their own as cannon fodder. So what's morally reprehensible about uh, these tragic stories of eight-year-old little girls is on Hamas. Uh, as far as the legal side of it goes, the, the administration really ought to put up or shut up. If they believe Israel has violated the law of armed conflict, say so. I haven't heard them do that, although they keep coming close to it. Uh, it's, uh, there are difficult questions here, and, and uh, human imperfection uh, has its role. But if they really think there's a violation of armed conflict, you know, be adult enough to say it out loud. Now, the political problem, I think, is really what's at the source of this. The, the, the Democratic Party's being ripped down the center uh, by a disagreement, by a very profoundly pro-Palestinian wing, uh, to the surprise of everybody that thought the Democrats were, were reliably pro-Israel. I think Biden is scared to death about the political implications for him next November. I think you make a great point. Uh, there's, there's the morality side of this. There's the political side of this. They don't always intersect. Even John Kirby talked about how the Israelis do more than even the United States does uh, in terms of protecting civilian lives. And then the, the flip side is the, the political reality. Mr. Ambassador, it's always good to see you. If we don't talk before, Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to you. Yes, sir. We've heard a lot about the need for a ceasefire in Israel. Hashtag ceasefire now. But not a ceasefire in Ukraine, where far more innocent people have died and tens of thousands of more soldiers have died. Hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians. It's the subject of a piece in The Federalist. We'll talk about that tomorrow. You can read more about it in tomorrow's War Notes. You can sign up for War Notes at warnotes.com. Gives you a free look at the show every day. The note started is our internal email discussion about the most important stories and events of the day, most important articles and thoughts. It's how we put the show together. We want you to be a part of it. You can respond to the email with your thoughts or join us on social media at Leland Vitter on Instagram or Twitter, warnotes.com, and subscribe for free. Coming up, terror comes home to America. Hamas calls for terror attacks, October 7th-like attacks in America. Why their fighters are likely already on American soil. And would we be as off guard as the Israelis? كيف تضغط على أمريكا بوقف هذه الحرب؟ ولذلك نحن بحاجة إلى أعمال خشنة، أعمال خشنة في كل مكان في مواجهة مصالح أمريكا وبريطانيا وكل الدول الداعمة لهذا المحتل.
In case you missed the Arabic subtitles, that's a Hamas leader calling for attacks in the U.S. and U.K. So suddenly the story about terror suspects that we've been telling you about on the southern border gets a lot more interesting. Germany just arrested four Hamas members before they could carry out an attack there against Jewish targets. We've been warning for a while about terror groups sending operatives across the southern border. 2021, 1.7 million came across. 2022, 2.3 million. 2023, 2.4 million. From October last year to this September, officials at the southern border arrested 169 people whose names matched those on the terror watch list, plus hundreds more from special interest countries. That's places like Lebanon, Syria, Yemen, known for supporting terrorism. Of course, those numbers don't count the gotaways. That is the hundreds of thousands of people that Border Patrol knows comes in. They see them on sensors or video, but are too busy processing groups like this to find. So those folks are just in the United States. Chad Wolf's here, former acting secretary of so former acting secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. It's been one of those days, Chad. Um, help me with this. I, having spent a lot of time in the Middle East and with a lot of these groups. It would be military malpractice for Hezbollah, for Hamas, for others to have not already tried, certainly tried multiple times, if not already succeeded in infiltrating people uh, into the United States. Is that message that we just heard enough to, quote unquote, activate them? Well, I certainly believe it is. Uh, And we know this uh, from a variety of different data sources, intel sources, that uh, groups like uh, Hezbollah, specifically Hamas, to a lesser extent, at least in the past, have certainly been here in the United States. The FBI has been aware of them. They've tracked them. And so a lot of these groups, as you indicated, have individuals here in the States. And so to, quote, activate them or to inspire them or to have them do something is is unfortunately a lot easier than I think most Americans really understand. And you, uh, you apply that with what's going on along the southern border, which you described so aptly, and I think you've got a real issue here. And so that's why we hear Director Ray saying that all the lights are blinking red. Uh, and he sees the, the threat of potential acts here, probably the highest that they've been since 9-11. And so that should give a lot of Americans a lot of uh, concern. You said 9-11. It was something that seemed obvious in retrospect. It was the black swan, but nobody ever considered using hijacked uh, airplanes as, as bo- flying bombs, as missiles, uh, except for Tom Clancy. You think about the October 7th attacks, which in retrospect make perfect sense um, in terms of what Hamas would have planned and planned and done. Uh, but it, you know, before that, nobody, nobody thought of it in Israel. I'm wondering in terms of a, an October 7th style attack on the United States, if that's even something that we could possibly guard against. Well, look, we, we have a number of law enforcement agencies, both here in the United States and some of our partners overseas, where we, we think about these things, right? They think about the types of attacks, how it, would be, uh, how it would be planned out. And so we're certainly been thinking about that. But look, the terrorists, as, as we often say, only have to get it right once. And so while we're able to disrupt, disrupt, disrupt uh, different plots over time, and you see that on the news periodically, they only have to get it right once. And so... It's not only about disrupting once they get here in the United States, but it's also about preventing their entry into the United States, which is critically important, which, mm-hmm. again, this administration, I believe, has not done a really good job about. And so you really need to do both. You need to make sure that they're prevented from ever coming into the United States. And then once they are here, you've got to disrupt. And that takes law enforcement working together, both at the federal, state and local level. Uh, and we've got a good apparatus here in the states 
Uh, but the question is, how do you prevent the entry to begin with? And I think that's yeah. where we need to do better at. Well, and also be clear eyed about what the threat really is uh, in terms of where, it, where it's coming from. Chad, it's good to see you as always. Thank you. Coming up next, right. a new film shows that Hollywood really does know what keeps Americans up at night. A movie that when you watch it and you think about it is scary on an awful lot of levels. Citizens of America, the so-called Western forces of Texas and California have suffered a very great defeat at the hands of the United States military. That's a new trailer for Civil War coming soon to a theater near you. This isn't a joke a production company made. The same production company, they won an Oscar last year. We're going to have more on this movie and why some of the scenes hit so close to home when you watch it. Sort of reminds us of some scenes that we've seen in America over the past couple of years. Chris is here um, not to talk about the trailer, but to talk about what you saw Today, it's interesting to be on television discussing video that we can't show the audience, but that we have seen and we can't show it to you for a number of reasons. One of which is almost too graphic and powerful. Yeah, I've been struggling with it all day. Um, And, you know, you and I have to make these decisions all the time when we're in the field and we're gathering information about what can the audience handle, what's instructive, what's too much. But we were at the Israeli consulate today, and I thought I had seen most of what I needed to see. I was really there to convince the IDF to try to put it out. And I wound up seeing things that made me understand exactly what the message was from Hamas to Israel. They had a real plan and a methodology to what they did there that I'll try to explain people tonight. I still think people should see what I saw, but it's some of the toughest stuff I've ever seen. Give me a theory. Go ahead. That the Israelis know public sentiments shifting against them. We've seen it in the Biden administration. We've seen the, the sort of attempts now to handcuff Israel, that they are going to start putting this out mm-hmm. over the next few weeks, few months, in the same way they did some of the other storylines mm-hmm. as public sentiment shifts against them to explain who they're fighting against. Maybe. Uh, I hope you're right. Uh, not about shifting sentiment or any of that. That's for everybody else to decide. But the point that was made to me today as a counter was... The families don't want it. Mm. They're devastated by the loss. And in terms of the balancing test, people who don't want to believe October 7th happened will never believe no matter what you show them. Yeah. So well, we're we've not already sure seen people deny it. Yeah. But I felt like I knew what I was talking about also before I went in there today. Change man. It's good Excuse to see you, brother. All right, you as well. Can the New York Times ever come back? A former editor tells us why America's paper of record started deciding the news rather than reporting the news. In 2020 riots, the New York Times published an op-ed from Senator Tom Cotton. The piece advocated using federal troops to protect lives and businesses from looting and violence that took over our cities. Full disclosure, the attack on me and my photographer outside the White House was often cited during the time as evidence of the lawlessness. It was a lawless time. Within days of the op-ed, the New York Times publisher demanded the resignation of the opinion editor. And now that editor is out with his version of events, James Bennett 
writes in The Economist, the Times problem has metastasized from liberal bias to illiberal bias, from an inclination to favor one side of the national debate to an impulse to shut debate down altogether. He goes on. One of the glories of embracing illiberalism is that you are like Trump. You are always right and everything. And so you are justified in shouting disagreement down. Colby Hall's here, founding editor of Mediate, on balance resident philosopher. Perhaps it would be also true of a number of other media organizations um, that they, they push out opinions that they don't and exclude by opinions they don't agree with. But considering what the Times holds itself out to be, it's even worse. It's stunning and brutal takedown, and there'll be a lot of recrimination within the New York Times office. Yeah, the New York Times loves to consider themselves the sort of the, the best of the best, and they do incredible journalism. But what he outs there is a culture that is more concerned with a herd mentality and proving that they are right instead of sort of asking serious questions, even if the answers don't sort of conform with your own bias. And yeah, you're right. You could apply that same thing. It's a great sort of dissertation on the problem with journalism right now, media in general. But the New York Times is, is going to be really hurt by this because this guy is acculturated. He was a beat reporter at the Times and it, he's acculturated. He, he, he so the New York Times has this culture where you basically start as a beat reporter, then you work your way up. He wasn't an out, outsider that came in. Like he was, he was a made man. He was within. a company man. Yeah, he was a company man, and he knows where the bodies are buried, and he sort of outs them. All right, let me ask you this though, in a in a different in a different way here, is, is I is I think about the arc of this story, is it's a little bit like the inmates somehow took over the asylum, right? And that somehow, and I think you could say this about a lot of media organizations, that management has become scared of the reporters rather than reporters scared of management if they don't do their jobs. Well, they hired a lot of people that didn't come up through the ranks and sort of like learn the way. And so there became this like, through Twitter and Slack messages, this power of anger and this group mentality that was vocal staff members condemning the decisions made by editors um, became too unwieldy so that the, the publisher had to fire the guy, even though he two days previously had said, it's a good idea. And by the way, Tom Cotton is a senator. He had close voice to President Trump. By all means, we should have published what, like, nothing bad happened as yeah. a result of that call. Yeah, no, it, well, it, in fact, sometimes good things come, which is we sort of learn what was going on there. We're exactly right. Good to see you, Colby. Good to see you, Thank you very much. Quick clarification about our story last night on Congressman Mike Garcia's stock trades. Last night, we told you he sold less than 50,000 shares of Boeing stock in a transaction that had some questionable timing when he came to office. While technically correct, it was less than 50,000 shares. We should have been more specific. Fairness dictates that we are specific. The value of the transaction was less than $50,000. And while he failed to disclose the transaction in the required time, we also should have noted it was just after he came to office in a special election and thus might have not known about the filing rules. Being the fairest show on television 